Okay, well, good morning again good morning. to everyone here and to those who are listening in podcast land. Um, it's great to be together again. Let me just adjust this. So to start off, we're going to talk about before and after pictures. You know those before and after pictures that show uh, dramatic weight loss? <laughs> or someone's already laughing over there. <laughs> or um, wrinkles that disappear overnight. Or, you know, renovations that turn a, this old decrepit house into something that's like amazing. There's something about seeing a comparison of something that is the same exact thing, but in two different states. That's really interesting to me, and to, apparently to Jean. Um, <laughs> were you laughing earlier? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm not the only one attracted to this because it's really prevalent in our culture, isn't it? These shows about fixing up houses, or you see advertisements everywhere. Our culture, it seems, is obsessed with transformations. And I wonder if what's intriguing about it, or at least part of it, is that we all relate to the before pictures, don't we? We know the feeling of aging, or our struggles with our body or health. We know what it means to own a home and how devoted that is, and how much time and money it takes to keep it up. Um, but more than that, we all know the desire for something better. We all want the after. And the, these pictures play into it. These pictures play into our desire for something better or something different than what we have. So before us today, in Ephesians, Paul kind of has a before and after that right before us. And what he's doing is he's comparing the dramatic life-altering change that happens when we're saved. So to the Christian, it should remind us of where we came from and what we were saved to. And to the non-Christian, it's a pretty stark and frightening picture of what life is like without Jesus. So wherever your heart is at, we all need to listen up, because it's good for us to hear this. And the reason why we need to hear this is because we have to accurately see ourselves through God's eyes, not through our own. And the believer needs to rightly see, and then see again, and it's a lifetime of seeing their need for Jesus and the story of redemption that they're a part of. And the non-believer really needs to see their accurate state of their heart, right? Because why else would they even need Jesus if they don't see it? If all that they see is that they, couldn't, they just need some self-improvement or some personal refurbishing, and they're going to be on a path that's not going to lead them anywhere good. One of my goals today is that we'll understand by the end of the lesson that it is this remembering of the good news that is actually what drives our very purpose in this world. It's like fuel for our short time on this earth, what gives us hope and what gives us power that we need to endure in this world. So in this passage that you guys already read, the gospel of Jesus is at the forefront. And I'll tell you, the gospel is not like wrinkle cream. We can be tempted sometimes to see this passage simply as a good old before and after. You know, that something that's aging becomes beautiful, or something that's outdated becomes transformed and modern or fresh. You can maybe think of messages that you've heard like that, or about, about being a Christian. But what is happening here is something greater. It's actually resurrection that's happening. A dead, lifeless thing actually has breath for the first time. 
And Paul emphasized something that we can't miss, that unlike the typical before and afters where you have to spend a lot of money to buy treatments or spend time at the gym or pay thousands of dollars for renovations, this gift is free and it's given to us and there's nothing that we can do to receive it. No, no effort of our own. And the giver of this gift is actually at the very center of this passage because this passage is all one sentence. Paul, most of Ephesians is, are all like big, long one sentences. I don't know why he wrote that like that. Um, the very middle is God. He is at the center of this passage. In verse 4, he comes on the scene. Do you know that actually, let me give you a little tip here, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is actually the story of the whole Bible from the beginning of the end. So if anyone ever asks you, what's the Bible about? You know, because you've studied Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and you can thank me later for that. <laughs> the gospel is here from the beginning to the end, and it's the story of God turning something that's dead into something that's alive. And God's power to raise Christ from the dead and conquer sin and death is at the very center of the Bible and at the very center of our passage. So in Genesis 2, man dwells in loving community with his creator. But then Adam and Eve, they choose to rebel. They doubt God's good plan and sin entered into the world. And that's exactly where Paul starts us. So if you look at verse 1, he says, You were dead. So this is their history. And being dead is bad, yeah. But if you think about what we studied last week, and if you were here, if you remember the whole chapter one, it's all about how amazing Jesus is and his power, that he's eternal, his work. And so when you see the backdrop of this beautiful story of who Jesus is, the context shows us that there's something cosmically going on, that Jesus is eternally reigning, and the people of Ephesus are lifeless. They're ineffectual. They can't do anything apart from Jesus. So there's this great contrast that's happening, and it feels kind of stark. It's not really a pep talk at this point, and it gets worse before it gets better. So he goes on. Why are they dead? He says it's their sin, their trespasses, and some of your translations might say, transgressions. So there's two different meanings here. And in his commentary, John Stott explains the word, the difference in those two words, why there's two things listed. Uh, trespass is like taking a false step. It's like going over a boundary line by accident. And sin actually means missing the mark or falling short. So it's like this double whammy. It's implying that your sins of commission and your sins of omission are all against you. You're dead, he's saying, because of your sin and your sin. He's, he's just all around. It's all there. And then in verses 2 to 3, he spells out what it looks like. So sin is walking. It's active. It's active action, if I can make up a weird phrase. But it's, there's nothing passive at all about being a sinner. You're walking, he says. There's this idea out there that if the non-believer does not appear to be an evil person or if they're like generally pleasant and they contribute to society, then they're not that bad. But verse 1 says it differently. It says just by being a person, you're actively walking in sin and you're following a path that Satan paved himself. So sin is walking, Paul says. If you look at it, it says sin is pursuing in verse 2. 
um, or in verse three. You're pursuing your passions, your desires, anything in the mind or body that feels good and seems right. It's lawless living, it's lawless thinking, and it's directly in opposition to God. So sin is walking and pursuing, and sin is an identity. Notice all the family language here. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Sinners are identified by their sin. And we all have last names to identify ourselves, right? Like I'm a Seward. There's a label over the sinner's head to identify them. Children of wrath. And this name plate means that they are marked as one who deserves God's wrath. That's what God sees when he sees a sinner. So this is who the Ephesian church was, and you did not get off the hook because it says in verse 3, like all of mankind. So even though Paul's writing to them, it's for us, obviously. All of mankind comes into the world in the same sinking boat. And this kind of flies in the face of what the world says, doesn't it? That we are born sinless and we're basically good. I hear that all the time. You hear it everywhere. I think about you just watch something benign on Disney Plus or whatever, and it's just everywhere. But church folk are not free from this correction because I think that the truth of our sinless nature is sometimes lacking in pulpits and Bible study lecterns, and people would rather teach devotions and pleasantries than actually talk about sin. But Paul says we're dead, and the Bible says it's like we're stones or corpses. Sorry. So do you remember when you realized this the first time when you were a Christian, when you became a Christian, when you thought, I am not alive without Christ, I'm helpless, I can do nothing in this state I'm in, I need God. So at the heart of the gospel is the fact that we need saving. And at the heart of the, this passage is the same thing. And that's where God meets us. And we might think the main passage or the main um, point of this passage or of the Bible is our transformation story, our reversal of fortune. But the emphasis is actually on God, the one who has the power to do it. So like I said, the Bible starts us up with, with us being dead. <clears throat> but if you were to, tra- to turn anywhere in the Bible after Genesis 3, the whole story is actually about God redeeming his people. Every single passage is about that. Everywhere you turn, even Song of Solomon, I don't know. It's all about God redeeming his people. And it's all pointing to Christ and the fact that all salvation is only possible through Jesus. So from the rest of the passage, there are three things I want us to grasp. <clears throat> Let me take another drink, sorry. Getting over a cold. The first thing involves math, which I hate. But this is important. So this is the first thing to grasp. God plus grace equals salvation. <clears throat> we seem to easily get this wrong, don't we? We think God plus me equals salvation. Or if you're feeling really proud of yourself, me equals salvation. Paul, in this passage, is stating that it's the mathematical irrefutable truth that we have done nothing to bring ourselves back from life. 
And he repeats it twice. He says, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. <clears throat> so God plus grace equals salvation. And getting the math matter or getting the math right matters to the Ephesians, to us, because doing this kind of math wrong offers no hope to anyone. And doing this kind of math wrong elevates the power of man and diminishes the power of Jesus. So God saved us out of his kindness. God's grace is undeserved. And when we take us out of the equation, we see that God is actually capable of saving us on his own. We know this, but I don't think we live like this all the time. And it changes how we think about our own salvation, that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves worthy in his eyes, because he looks at us and he sees Christ's worthiness, not ours. But I think what's important to see here, too, is that it changes how we think about the unsaved people in our lives. Do you ever feel powerless to change your unbelieving child or spouse or friend or parent? I do. But we should feel powerless because we are. We are completely powerless. We can do nothing to save them. We have a part in it. We can share about God, but the work is not ours. It's the spirits. So we rely on the power of the one true God who can do something. He raises people from spiritual death, not us. And I don't know about you, but that actually gives me a lot of comfort when I think about my children who don't know God or people who I love. He's going to do the heavy lifting, and he's going to change people's lives. And there's nothing we can boast in. It says these are not the works we boast in. We have other works to do. That's not our work. So the first thing we need to grasp is God plus grace equals salvation. The second thing is that God is not stingy. If you look at the language of the passage, I just love it. It says, God is rich in mercy because of his great love. He wants to show us his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Salvation is a gift. We are his masterpiece. Do you hear the generous language? We have to put away the false idea that God is grumpy and miserly and just generally always displeased with us. Because it says here he acted out of love and he's kind. How does that truth change the way you think about your circumstances that you find yourself in? Maybe the state of your health, the people he wants you to love, the way he's calling you to serve in church. God is not stingy. Third, and this is where Paul is going with this passage. <clears throat> we don't have to guess what our purpose in life is. We don't have to guess what our purpose in life is. I wonder if you've ever felt uncertain, uncertain of your purpose or not quite sure what the meaning of your life is. I mean, we're all here, we're studying the Bible. We know God created us. We know there's some meaning. But like in the day to day, the meaning of work and family and church and suffering and living, I just think sometimes like I'm doing laundry and I do a lot of laundry every day and like a lot. And sometimes I'm sitting there, I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Why am I folding this again? This is, this is a lot. Or maybe you're driving to work, you're on the same road again, and then the next day, and the next day, or maybe, I guess it's a lot of them the same. I don't know, it's all weird now. But there's this repetition, this wondering, of what are we doing? Well, maybe you're in relationships with church, or people at church, or home, and 
Like, we're dealing with the same struggles again and again and again. What is this? I don't know what it was like for you when you were in your, your 20s, but after I graduated university, the big question was, what am I going to do with my life? I feel like they start asking that here in like middle school. I don't know, it's weird. <laughs> what am I going to do with my life? What's God's will for my future? It's a big question. And a lot of, especially I went to a Christian university, a lot of the question was finding God's will, finding God's will. <clears throat> All of my friends were asking the same thing, trying to figure out what job to get, where to move, who to marry. Um, these felt like such big, life-altering decisions that if we just figured them out, our life would become purposeful. And I used to feel that way. I don't feel that way anymore. And I think it's because the Bible is pretty clear that all we need for a godly living, he gives us in his word, and he tells us. And he gives us the answer for what our purpose is. And it's not a specific job. It's not being married. It's not having children. What's the will of God? What's your life's purpose? What are you going to do today? It says right there, walk in the good works you were created for. We don't have to guess what our purpose here is on this earth. So in this Bible, we find ourselves in the in-between time after Genesis 3, (coughs) and until he makes all things new, God makes all things new in Revelation. And what did he plan for us to do in the meantime? He planned for us to be walking in good works. So from resurrection, the the resurrection of Christ on in the Bible is the story of the church learning how to walk in his ways and how to do good works. And what are these good works? I keep using this phrase. Well, the Bible's full of them. But just to name some that Ephesians list, since this is where the, the book is going, and I'll give us a, a hint of what we're studying. These are some of the good works that Paul lists. Humility, gentleness, bearing with one another, being eager to maintain peace, speaking the truth in love, building up the body of Christ in love, not sinning in anger, not using corrupting language, giving yourself up for one another, not coveting, not being sexually immoral, not getting drunk, submitting to one another. We don't have to guess what our purpose on earth is because it's all of those things and a lot more. So to close, I want you to think about your own personal resurrection story. Maybe it happened recently. Maybe it was 20, 40 years ago. I don't know. Um, remember who you are without Christ, who you were without Christ. You were marked as one who was opposed who opposed God, whether you lived a life of outward rebellion or not. You were dead, and so was I. And now we are alive, and we're called to a different kind of action down a different kind of path. And like the Ephesians, who needed a reminder so they would not lose heart, because being a Christian for them then was really hard, just like it is now. We need this fuel of remembering who we were because it's this remembering of the good news of God that drives our very purpose and keeps us from getting weary. So what's the rest of your day today like in your week? As you clean, as you work, as you go for a walk, as you hang out with friends, interact with your husband, care for your kids, go to church, that's what you're called to. So do good works in that. And if you're like me, you need to remember the power of God every day, right? Because it's hard. It's really hard. 
Our transformation story doesn't stop once we take our first breath. We have work to do. The Bible says it's good work. And even though life is hard, the Bible says, but God, who is rich in mercy, he saved us, so we have to walk in the good works he's called us to. So that's my encouragement for all of us and for our hearts today. Let's pray. God, thank you for calling us to do good works. <clears throat> thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us the power to do these good works. And I pray for anyone here who is not sure that they know Christ. I pray that they would know, and I pray that they would seek, and they would find you. And I pray for those here who are just feeling ineffectual and feeling lost, and I pray that they would remember the power that they have in you. They would remember they're saved to something good. So give us your strength to do those things. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies. Now you can have some time to discuss at your table.